0: Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we were having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a and a with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. What should you budget for a quality of earnings report?
1: Typically, the budget for a small business acquisition ranges anywhere as, as low as 10,000 for a light QOV, quality earnings analysis, to as high as typically about 25,000 or so in the mid-20s. And of course, this depends on the complexity of the, the business itself, just the quality and the conditions of the books. But generally speaking, that range is a pretty good estimate. And the way that we help kind of manage that cost and, and managing the cost of the quality of earnings is especially important in this space. And primarily, there is a lot of uncertainties around whether the deal is viable and is it, going to go to the finish line. And so the, the way we uh, manage the cost is, as I mentioned, in the phase one and phase two approach allows at least to take on certain risk in the early stage of the process. So if the deal doesn't work out as not doesn't make sense and then it, it has to terminate, then we're looking at you know, a cost that's basically a fraction of the total,
0: total cost. So it makes that process a little bit more manageable. Awesome. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Overly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, microprivate equity and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at A.E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, Subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at TheArbitersHandbook.com. My guest in this episode is David Dodson. David started the second-ever search fund after being a Stanford case writer, purchasing Smith Alarm Systems in 1989. Over his career, David has been the CEO or executive chairman of five companies, has and continues to invest in search funds today through his firm, Food of Partners. And he is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business, teaching classes about search and the management of small companies. My conversation with David starts at this time as a case writer before launching his search fund. We talk about peaks and valleys in his search career, including some very hard conversations. We dive deep into the topic of transitioning from a contributor to a leader of a small firm and important leadership skills. We also talk about how the search fund world has evolved over time and where it might continue to change in the future. Finally, we talk about the relationships searchers have with their investors and how to foster better ones. I've been really excited to have Dave on the podcast for quite a while, and I hope you enjoy our wide-ranging conversation. Before this episode starts, I do have a personal announcement I'm really excited to share. On March 22, 2022, I started a new full-time role as Chief of Staff at HW Media, working directly for CEO Clayton Collins. This will be my two-year media MBA to prepare for ambitions in media entrepreneurship and acquisition. Over the last few years, I've become extremely passionate about media and data companies, and I've been studying them extensively. I was about to start looking for one to acquire when I asked Clayton for his advice as a media acquirer himself. We had a great conversation, but the next day he called me out of the blue with this offer to learn how to scale media companies and work alongside him. I felt it was a no-brainer. My role is going to focus on acquiring other relevant media brands and building an industry data product. The roles remote and think like an owner and the operator's handbook are both going to continue operating alongside my new role. They've both been huge impacts on my career and they're not going anywhere. And I want to keep working on them. Thank you to all who have listened, subscribed and shared advice with me over the last three and a half years. I'm incredibly grateful for your support and helped me get here. And I'm excited to keep building those relationships further. As I start my new chief of staff role, I'd love to chat with professionals in media and data companies and accelerate my learning as much as possible. Please reach out if you want to chat or know someone I should talk to. And now, enjoy my conversation with David Dodson. Thanks, David, for coming on the podcast. I've been really excited to have you. There's been a number of of folks who have encouraged me to to try to have you on the show. So I'm excited to finally get to chat with you a little bit more. I'd love to just begin with the extensive background that you've had as a CEO, investor, professor. I would love to hear kind of your version of that journey up till today sure so my journey kind of started with this
2: seminal event that happened to me when i was in business school before business school i'd worked at mckinsey for a couple of years and then i was at business school and in my second year of a two-year program i got to know this guy of Grossbeck, and he was a professor he was very early in his career as a professor but he had started a company called continental cable vision with a partner years ago And I ended up doing a little bit of independent study work with him. And I just realized that this is the guy that I needed to work for. And so this was all before internet and email and so forth. And so I called or sent letters to all the places that I had job offers or I was trying to get a job from and and took my name out of the hat. So I burned the boats. And then so that I wouldn't lose my nerve, I went to his office and I said, I want to work for you. And I don't care what you pay me. And I don't care what I do. I'll wash your car. I just want to work for you. That's literally what I said, Alex. And he paused and he said, well, I was talking to the deans at Stanford and we're thinking about hiring our first case writer. Because by the way, all our, all the, all our cases were written by Harvard case services. He said, would you like to be Stanford's first case writer? I said, yes. I mean, you know, I I, I was going to wash his car for free. So this was a dream come true for me. So I ended up staying a year after I graduated from business school and was a case writer at Stanford. And the first case I wrote was on the first search fund that had ever been raised. Two guys, Kirk Riedinger and Jamie Turner, who happened to be students of Irv Grosbeck's when he taught at Harvard. He taught at Harvard for two years before he came to Stanford. And as I'm writing this case, the whole time, I'm thinking, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. So for a second time, I went into his office, kind of trembling, and by the way, Irv is not an intimidating person. I was just intimidated by him. So this is, this is about me, not about him. And so kind of trembling, and I said, "You know, I'd, I'd really like to do this, and I was wondering if you thought it was a good idea and whether you would be interested in investing and i'm sure that i was stuttering and all of that i i and he said yes and yes so that's what i that's how i ended up raising a search fund a guy named jim southern had sort of raised wasn't really a search fund but it was kind of the foundation for the concept of search funds these other two guys raised it and then i raised the second kind of you know true institutional search fund and that launched my career and i always wanted i always knew i wanted to lead an organization and build something. And but I didn't have an idea. I didn't have any money. I mean, I grew up in rural Colorado. I was surrounded by horses and cows and no money. So I needed to find some people that would back me and help help me on my journey to go buy a company. And I remember going out and, and talking to people who had money. And I wasn't used to that and I wasn't around that. And it was just miraculous for me that you could go to somebody with your dream and they might say, yeah, I'll back you. And then they would write you it. Back then it was a check and they would literally write and, and I, I was raising $120,000. So now a search fund raises more like $420,000. And I so I raised from 12 people, $10,000 and I still have photocopies of these checks because I just couldn't imagine that somebody could write a check for ten thousand dollars, so that was that was how I got started,
0: yeah, are there any interesting memories or like something that sticks out to you the most when you think of getting all those ten thousand dollar checks that was really like the the shocking moment to you or really you felt like the the turning point perhaps
2: well, I have a funny story if 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 you've got a minute for a funny story, there was a two guys who were case subjects in Irv Grosbeck's class, a guy named Bill Egan, who had a venture capital firm, and then a guy named Rob Johnson, who was the entrepreneur that he had backed. And I got to know both of them a little bit. And, and one quarter, Rob Johnson came to class. And afterwards, the three of us were going for, for lunch. And I, he said, well, what are you going to do? with your life afterwards and i explained this idea of a concept to rob johnson and and he had been an entrepreneur not too much longer before that and and he said well you know i'd really be interested in taking a look at that when you come time to raise money so i did and he invested so about four months later bill egan was coming by coincidence the same class but rob johnson wasn't there and we were also going to lunch and he asked me the same question of course now i'm on a roll And I give him my little spiel about search funds and he pauses and he actually stopped as we were walking and looks at me and he says, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Why would anybody invest in such a thing? So of course he's not going to invest, right? Which was really a disappointment. And then then months later when I was closing and I was calling Rob Johnson and, or actually he called me and I needed him a signature for something he was going to needed a fax, a signature, whatever. And as he's describing it to me, I hear this voice in the background. It goes, he "Goes, who's that?" And he said, "It's this guy, Dave Dodson." He goes, "Who?" He goes, "Dave Dodson." He goes, "Give me the phone." Well, it's Bill Egan. And Bill Egan grabs the phone. He goes, "I'm in." <laughs> so, so that what? So, so my lesson is that a key part of fundraising is people have a fear of missing out. And people do want to be in deals that other people are in. So that was, that, and that Bill Egan is now a dear friend of mine. And I, he's probably invested in 100
0: search funds since then. That's fantastic. And were you the first one then? First one, what? First search fund that he invested in. Oh, yeah. No, because he
2: thought the whole thing was insane. But I was the second search fund. Now, remember, this guy, Jim Southern, sort of had, had a, the basic concept of, Getting some people to kind of back you to buy a company, but it was Kirk Readinger and Jamie Turner that formed a fund. So it was probably two years later before a second search fund was was raised. I mean, it, there wasn't even one a year that was raised back then.
0: Yeah, so I imagine there's probably not a whole lot of standard practices or you know guidelines from other searchers you can follow. So once you had the hundred twenty thousand raised, what would you start to do to go look for companies? Well, first of all, I'll tell you something that's really interesting is that. So Kirk Reading and
2: Jamie Turner probably raised their search fund probably just probably almost 40 years ago to the day. The structure is unchanged since then. They just nailed it from the start. So the kind of the structure and the concept is unchanged in terms of going out and finding sellers. Things have matured a lot, but back then, I mean you were typing out letters and licking stamps and putting them on envelopes and you were getting on the phone and cold calling them it was very different there wasn't the opportunity to reach people like you can now and also reach people in mass but what's been interesting alex is that the the most successful search fund entrepreneurs when they're looking for a company tend to do best when they go back to some of the old school methods not necessarily of an uh, a letter in an envelope although some people have been quite successful with that but not doing kind of the spray and pray mass mailings, but the, the, the custom individual mailings, where maybe you'll research the company and do, you know, four or five a day instead of 50 a day seem to be far more effective. So, you know, I think, I, I, I I think there's still some, some lessons from
0: us dinosaurs that are being used today. Yeah. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of calls too, where you called and they yelled at you and hung up immediately and said, never call again or something like that. Is (laughs) there, you do get some of that what are some of the most kind of stressful calls that you had or the, maybe the ones that kind of stung at you the most? Well, in fairness, this is 35 plus years ago. So I wish
2: I, I wish I could recall a specific phone call or incident, I can't, but I can tell you something that's more general, which is that I loved meeting owner-operators, people who had started their company 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. They built a brick by brick, They knew everybody's name. They knew everybody's spouse. They were at people's weddings and christenings and funerals and the pride that they would have in their companies. And I loved meeting them. And and surprisingly enough, yes, there's a few people who might hang up on you, but most people liked the idea of getting a chance to talk to somebody about their business and, you know, maybe brag a little bit, honestly, about about what they've done and what they've accomplished, show off their company. And most people who are successful as an owner-operator who have built a company are good people. Of course, there's knuckleheads out there and there's creeps out there that you wouldn't want to associate yourself with. But generally speaking, to be a leader and build a decent-sized company, you've got to be a, you've got to be a good person. You've got to be a good soul. Otherwise, you can't get good people to work for you and you, you can't get customers to want to buy your product or service.
0: Tell us a little bit about the company that you acquired and ran as CEO then. So what, what was that part of your life like?
2: Yeah. So the company was, the, the name of the company was Smith Alarm Systems, and it was a third generation company, and it was owned by George Smith and his brother, Jim Smith, and then three aunts. And, but George and Jim Smith owned most of the company. They owned 81% of the company. So it was really the two of them that I had to buy the company from. And then somehow I had to get three hands to sign, sign the agreement. And I, I, I remember that George and Jim said, lots of people have tried to buy this company, but you can't buy it unless you get all five of us to agree, just the way it was, the, the way that it was structured. And when that happened and when I did buy the company, they said, do you know that there is not a single piece of paper on the planet that has all five of our signatures on it. So it was the only thing they ever agreed on in their entire life. I think I got a little bit lucky because the ants were at a, a place in their life where they, you know, they did need to sell their business. But I was blessed that one of my investors was an attorney in Dallas and he was a tax attorney, which you wouldn't necessarily think that a tax attorney would be a good deal guy. But he was a really, really skillful deal person and he understood he understood how you did business back then in Dallas. And he would accompany me in meetings, and I'd get in the car, and he'd tell me all the things I did wrong and all the things that I did right and he was a his name is he's passed away now, but his name's herb Kendrick, and Herb was an enormous mentor to me, which brings me to another part of why I was able to buy this company is that I was surrounded by really great people like herb. And Bill Egan, who I'd mentioned, and Irv Grossbeck, and you know, one story in particular. I was I I'd, I was working in San Francisco, so I'd flown to Dallas in the morning. I was going to come back that night. I didn't have any change of clothes with me; it was just a day trip. And I met with the Smiths, and the day did did not go well at all. And as far as I could tell, the deal was dead, dead, dead. So I'm taking the cab back to Dallas Fort Worth Airport, and I call Irv Grossbeck on the phone. And I explained the situation to him and I said, so the deal's dead. And I was so worn out, Alex, at this point, I kind of almost wanted to be left off the hook. I just sort of wanted to go home and put the blankets over my head and maybe, you know, have two or three beers and fall asleep and call it, you know, and that was it. And I remember he said, you know, I don't think that deal's dead. And I think you should go back. You do whatever you want, but I think you should go back. So you know, I mean, he's a smart guy, and I'd never done anything like this before. So I told the cab driver to turn around, flip a U. Fortunately, I had a classmate that he and his wife, they were both classmates of mine from business school, and Rich and Tucker and Toven, and I stayed on their couch for three nights in a row. I, I decided to, I don't know if this made a difference or not, but I decided to wear the same clothes every single day because I wanted to show how determined and dedicated i was to buy their company so i'd show up with the same clothes every day day after day and after three days i left with a signed piece of paper a uh, letter of intent so it just shows that the that it, that one of the important mo- tenants of the search fund model is you're combining a kind of i call it a you know a high trajectory but inexperienced ceo with a good company and good mentorship and when you pull, put those common put that combination together, it's got an extraordinarily high success rate.
0: Yeah, I love the using the same clothes over and over. It's just just show me that you're at almost your wits end with with your abilities. That's fantastic. Yeah, of
2: course I might have been able to get the deal closed in two days if I hadn't looked like such a kook when I was walking in there with the same clothes every day. But that's what that was my strategy back then.
0: Well, it clearly worked. I know one concept or even just time period that you've thought a ton about is that first 18 months as a CEO in a new company. How did you approach the first 18 months in your business versus how you might teach someone new today to do that, that same 18-month period?
2: Yes. So that really brings on kind of the point of something that's changed a lot over those 35 years. So when I bought this company and this was true with Jim Southern Kirk Reader Jamie Turner and the dozen people after after that is that I was calling my investors all the time and all the time meaning you know somewhere between once and twice or once and three times a week with all sorts of questions and after the search fund world or community started to get bigger and more populated and investors started to become busier and so forth. Because most of my, not most, all of my investors only had one search fund investment because I was the only person who had done it, It, you know, who was doing it at the time. Everybody got kind of busy and it became a little bit more do it yourself. And it was, it was, it was damaging to the search fund world because we forgot that you just can't take somebody, no matter how bright and talented and ambitious they are, from whatever they did before business school say to business school which doesn't really train you on a lot of the day-to-day stuff you need to do to run a company and then just expect that they're going to show up the next day and figure out how to run a company you you have to learn it and it's a little bit like if i said oh i you know i want to be a great piano player so i'm just going to sit down at the keys and magically all of a sudden music's gonna come out of the keys when when my fingers touch the keys. Well, it doesn't work that way. You have to learn all the, all the basic skills. You put them together and you'll make some music, but somebody's got to teach you what a sharp and a flat is and how to hold your fingers over the keyboard and what the pedals do. And so in the early days, those were those phone calls. And then there was this period of time kind of in the middle where people were sort of left on their own. And I think it had... You know, unfortunately, everything worked out, but I think it, it it made it harder for people to get started and get ramped up. What's happened now, and now meaning in the last, say, 15 years, is is really a wonderful development, which is that investors, that there's far more investors than there are entrepreneurs. And so investors have to prove to entrepreneurs that they're going to add value. M- money's easy to come by in the search fund world. What, what, what the, cert, the smart search fund entrepreneurs are looking for is mentorship and guidance. And so when they raise money, they don't ask the question about, you know, can you write me a check for $40,000? They say, what are you going to do to help me learn how to become a CEO? So in our case, so I, I have an investment fund, it's called Food Lafou Partners, which is hard to spell and hard to pronounce, but it's named after a river in Chile. So that's where the name Food Lafou came from. We actually offer with everybody an 18 month training program. And once a month, uh, you know, I pair two other CEOs together. So it's a cohort of three. And once a month we get together on zoom and we talk about a particular sub skill that adds to one of what, what I've identified as the five main skills of leadership. So let, let me, let me give you an example. So one of the five skills of, le- of, of being a good leader is the ability to create a team, build a team. Well, probably everybody knows that, but how do you do that? Well, you do that because you, you pull together different sub skills, learn how to hire, learn how to do an exit interview, learn how to do a 360 review, learn how to give someone a performance review, learn how to let someone go. So all of those sub skills are the same thing to, I'll go back to my piano example, same thing about, you know, learning the difference between a sharp and a flat or what the pedals mean. If you, if you knit all the sub skills together, then you have it. So, so on these, on these zoom calls that we have we'll talk about how to do an exit interview and i'll send something out in advance it's in writing just to make it efficient so they have something to read in advance and then we talk about the reading and and any roadblocks that they've seen to implementing let's say 360 reviews within their company and my my goal is to get somebody to the 18 month mark excuse me to get them to the the three-year mark in 18 months so to to get them down that curve steep so it's not on the job training that's just one example
0: so what are the other four skills of leadership that you tend to focus on
2: so Al- alex the five skills have kind of come about as i've been as i've been both a, f- a professor at the stanford business school and i and that kind of forces you to pop your head up a little bit and think more broadly about business and and what kind of drives performance. And then, of course, my own experience as a CEO and a leader of multiple organizations. And then just watching people as they you know progress through their own career. And I came about these five, and I'm just convinced to my core that if you learn these five, and they're all learnable, that you'll be successful as a leader. So the first one is a commitment to building a team, which we just talked about. The next one is being a fanatical custodian of time. All leaders recognize that their number one resource is their time, and they don't waste it and they don't let other people waste their time. The next one is a willingness to seek and take advice. And, and, you know, Alex, you and I were just talking about it not too long ago about how, you know, how, how I had I was surrounded by mentors and I was able to be able to seek and take advice from those people. And it made a huge difference in my career. Fourth is setting and adhering to priorities. And the last one is an obsession with quality. And sometimes people think about that obsession with quality as if it's sort of—it seems like a uh, not an obvious one. But you name me an enduring organization that doesn't pr- that doesn't either offer a high quality service or provide a high quality product. You can't get away with it otherwise. And people can match you on price. They can find resources with the click of an internet. But if you're not providing quality, you won't survive. Furthermore, quality, you know, some people have pushed back and said, well, you know, I think being able to sell. And I say, listen, I, I fundamentally disagree. Because if you have a crappy product, the best salesperson in the world can't sell that over a long period of time. And by the way, if you have an awesome product, you can have a mediocre salesperson and it's going to fly off the shelf. So those are the five, all of which can be broken
0: down into sub-skills and can be learned by anybody. Yeah, I think that's a big point too, is that the five can be learned. They're not, there's no sense that any one person, like, the, the, this person was born to be a leader, this person was not. There's not this distinction between the two. There is It's very fungible and learnable to do these things. Is that a challenging concept to communicate with folks who maybe have perhaps viewed other entrepreneurs as Born to be great, so to speak, and they don't feel like they can get to that point. Or,
2: well, the born to be great thing is, I just absolutely disagree with that. And you, you line up fifteen or fifteen hundred leaders that you admire, and you're going to find introverts and extroverts, and you're going to find people that are great public speakers and people that you know stutter at the at the microphone, and you're going to find tall people and short people all across the board. But one thing you will find is they all share these five characteristics, and they all have had to learn it. Whether they learned it in eighteen months or they learned it in eighteen years, they've all come about to learning it. So, so for example, if you, I would just you know challenge your listeners. So just just go and 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 well, you won't have to because I'm going to give you the answer. But had you gone and googled, you know, prioritization, and then you looked for sort of quotes of prioritization. You would be overwhelmed with quotes from people like you know Steve Jobs and Warren Buffett and Mary Barra of General Motors and Winston Churchill. I mean, they all were fanatical about prioritization. You know, Steve Jobs in particular, quite interesting. I, I, I'll tell you two very quick stories. One was when he left or when he, after he got fired and then he came back. I'm not going to have the exact number right, but it, but Apple had something like 15 products. And he cut it down to two or three. And he has this quote, he said, he said, if we can't make one good computer, how can we make 15? And he was, he was absolutely obsessed with priority. And then you look back on Apple's history and you say, oh, that's kind of interesting because they came out with the iPod and then they perfected the iPod. And then they came out with Whatever it is, you know the, the the Apple Watch, and they perfected the Apple Watch, or they came out with the laptop and they perfected that, and and so they they basically Apple had this history of coming out with maybe one product a year, making it perfect, and then they would come out with another product. And I, while I'm on the subject, Eric Schmidt, who was one of the founders of Google, he went by to see Steve Jobs in Steve Jobs' very last days, and it was it was evident to both of them that it was the last time they would ever see each other again. And this is in um, uh, the book on on Steve Jobs, and I was struck by the fact that of all the things Steve Jobs could have talked to Eric Schmidt about in their their last meeting together, because he knew he was going to be dead soon, he talked about prioritization. Imagine
0: that. Not that amazing. Yeah, talk about getting your priorities straight when your your clock is ticking down very quickly. What are some examples of prioritization that are effective in that early 18 month or even maybe the 3 month period because I, I imagine that changes over time like that's the stuff that's important and you prioritize in the first 6 months is probably very different than what you prioritize prioritize in year 3 or 4 so within those that early time frame what start what's effectively what's effective to prioritize
2: well i in, in, in as one of the sub skills and i talk about prioritization what the, the first thing i talk about is sort of how you go about the job of, of deciding what you should or shouldn't work on. And I've kind of broken it down into a series of questions and steps that you go through. So first, you talk to your your employees, and there's about five questions that I suggest people ask of all their employees. And then you talk to your your customers or your clients, and then you talk to your suppliers, and then you've learned about information in your competitors. So the first thing is, the, the first priority, if you will, should be information gathering. Because your instincts are really not good. Instincts are only good if they're built on a foundation of experience and pattern recognition, but you don't have that when you walk in the door. So that's the first thing. The second thing about prioritization is you have to understand these two concepts. The first concept is that the leader can think of great ideas faster than the organization can implement them. You know, you can ideate your way, you know, when you're driving home and thinking about, oh, we should do this. and oh, we should do that. And then you come back and, okay, well, it only took you 20 minutes or an hour or a week to come up with the idea, but your organization needs to hire people. They may need to get, they may need to get equipment. They may need to get suppliers. I mean, implementation takes time, but, but amateur leaders and people early in their career think that the organization can implement as fast as they can ideate and they can't. The second thing that you have to accept is that prioritization is not about eliminating all the things you shouldn't do. It's eliminating all of the great, wonderful, fantastic ideas that you can't get to. And less experienced CEOs and less experienced leaders can't let go of the fact that most of their great ideas will never see the light of day if they want they're very, 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 very best ideas to be implemented.
0: Yeah, that must be a really big challenge. And another kind of embedded challenge within that, but throughout all your different skills, is having to switch from being a contributor to another organization to now being a leader of your own organization, where you talked about that instinct and gut and that pattern recognition is built on being a contributor, which is now perhaps not relevant at all to being a leader. And how do... How do you recommend folks make that transition when they're used to being, they're used to having a boss and having deliverables and a whole organization that they're a part of to now leading that organization?
2: You know, I remember a long time ago, I was meeting with a guy, Kevin Landry. And Kevin Landry had, he was the person who effectively built up the, you know, huge private equity fund TA Associates. So Kevin didn't found it, but he was there early on, and he's the one who created the modern-day TA Associates. And he told me that the hardest step that a person makes in their career is not going from an individual contributor to being a manager. He said it's when you go from being a manager to managing managers. And, And here's why, Alex. If you're an individual contributor, you're basically measured based on output. And and, and you can just hit the more button. You can work on the weekend, you can stay a little later, and it's mostly on how many charts you can do or how many cold calls you can make and so forth. When you become a manager, you can actually still hit the more button. So if the person that works for you, if you don't like their report before the sales presentation, you can just stay up at night and fix it, right? Or you can work on the weekend and cover for somebody. So you can actually get away with not being a good manager when you just have three or four direct reports. But when you go up one more level and you're managing managers, you've got two things that make it impossible. One is you can't really reach over your direct reports who are managers and fix things that their subordinates did because then you're, then you're kind of destroying the, the fabric of or the organization chart. But the other is just from a practical standpoint, you just got too many people. You know, so you, you know, you can do three people's work if you work your tail off, but you can't do 13 people's work. The, the beauty of that, which is what Kevin Landry explained to me, and I saw it over and over again, is once you learn how to manage managers, it's completely scalable. So it's why, you know, my, my classmate and friend, Tom Staggs, who was the CEO of Disney, why he could run an organization with, you know, I don't know how many, but it was maybe a hundred thousand employees why he could do that in exactly the same number of days in the week and hours in the day as someone who's running an organization with 100 employees, because they were, they're were they both exercising the skill of managing managers. And within that, the five skills of good leadership.
0: That's a huge point to make, too, is that that is a model that scales versus the simply hitting more button, which doesn't scale. What are some common struggles that folks have when they move to the manager of managers role. I you mentioned, you know, reaching over and doing someone's work for them that you know maybe needs to get fixed. But what are some other common pitfalls that you see folks run into?
2: Yeah. So one would certainly be the kind of the Napoleonic version of if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And okay, so maybe you can do it a little better than someone else, but would you rather be doing having 10 times the output at 94% or one, you know, one-tenth the output at 100%. You just can't build an organization that way. So you have to kind of let loose of your own standard of perfectionism and say, my job is not to be perfect in one small little thing. If you want to do that, go be an artist, okay? Or go be a public speaker, but but you don't be a leader. That's not about, that, that has nothing to do with leadership. So you have to let, you have to let go of that and you also have to realize that that the work has to be done by other people you're now a coach you're not throwing the pass you're not making the blocks you're not running the patterns someone else is doing it and so your job is to help other people become really really good at what they do not try to be a doer yourself and you have to and, and once you kind of sort of break out of that mindset and then you hire really good people And you've got them motivated and you've, you've allowed them to, uh, you know, you've told them what the priorities are and you're sticking to your priorities, not changing priorities every month. And then you see the results. It becomes very addictive because now what's making you all excited and what's, you know, having the endorphins fly inside of you is you're watching your organization work as opposed to just, wow, look at my PowerPoint presentation. I got, I got, I got the shade of blue. I nailed the
0: shade of blue absolutely that that shade of blue is very important within your company at what point did you, that did that click for you where you were like oh, holy cow i now have a team that's improving and growing my organization for me like what what was that moment do you remember that
2: well i was really I, I was really lucky that i think i i that allowed me to get there faster than i think i otherwise would have so the company that i bought had had three basic divisions and one of those divisions was just too complicated for me to get my arms around, and it wasn't a huge part of the business. It was about twenty percent of the business. So I even went to George Smith and and offered to sell that piece of it back to him because it, it, for the reasons I just I just described. But we weren't able to get something worked out, and that was fine. And while I was busy messing around with the other two divisions, which was the you know that represented about eighty percent of the, the the company's sales. All of a sudden I started noticing that because that, that division, the third one was really well run and had, and had a good manager that it was doing really, really well. And then I started to realize the power of if you, if you are clear with your priorities and you have created a good team and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that you, these organizations can run on their own with you, be, with you serving in the, in, in the role of leaders. So I ended up then, so I got there by accident, Alex, but then the other two, then I started to work back from and 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 pull further and further back. And my job became less about, here, I'm gonna design the commission plan for this particular division to, I'd like you to design a commission plan. Here's some design principles around it. How can I help you succeed? And then done properly, that person would come back with something that, that exceeded anything that I could have done on my own. And then you don't go backwards. It's a mindset and it's a skill and it's, it's a frame of mind
0: that you, th- that you don't retreat from. We've talked a lot about challenges just within making that transition, but I assume over your career, there's been a lot of peaks and valleys just on the natural course of being an entrepreneur and investor. Can you talk a little bit about perhaps some of the valleys where things were challenging and uh, there, was a, there was an entrepreneur who called them near-death experiences? in their business. I'd love to hear perhaps a few of yours that you learned the most from.
2: Yeah, I, w- I had probably the, the, the most painful near-death experience. And I had, I had more than one it was the, f- this was the fourth or fifth company that I was running. And we, this one, we effectively started from scratch. And when I say we, it was myself and two people. So this is a time when I, when I brought on two partners to start this company. And we were buying up a bunch of companies along the way and putting them together and we were doing it with quite a bit of success. And then we moved out and expanded from New England area into Long Island and we bought really, really fast and the businesses were a little bit different than the other ones and we got out over our skis and we owed more money than, than we really were going to have the cash flow to pay. And we had bought these companies from small independent you know mom and pops, and most of them had had sold their company to us for cash, but also a note that we would pay them over time so this wasn't this wasn't as if i didn't I might not be able to pay back money to Citibank or Goldman Sachs. this was not being able to pay money back to a seventy five year old couple who had depended upon that for their retirement. It was frightening to me, frightening for me that, that I would have had any role in that at all. And I had to go back seller by seller in their kitchen. Sometimes they would be in tears explaining that I needed more time. I never I never asked for forgiveness on the, on the amount that I owed and I never said that I couldn't pay them. I just said that I needed a few more years and it was scary for them. And I more or less lived out of my car as I went back to probably about 35 different people that I bought companies from. In the end, we paid everybody back, every penny that we owed them, and it had a happy ending. But you know, there were times when I thought the company was going to go into bankruptcy and I was going to have ruined the retirement of you know, 25 people.
0: Any of those conversations over the kitchen table sting the most or are most memorable to you?
2: I think one that was really, really difficult. It was it was a couple of different sellers. And I was in a room because they all wanted to meet with me together. And one couple, and they were probably in their 70s or whatever. And I watched her start to tear up. And, and then at some point she said, I don't think we're going to be able to have a wedding for my grandson, granddaughter. And there was something about her there personally watching her tear up and realizing that the the true impact that i was going to have on them and i didn't know whether i was going to pay them back or not i knew i was going to do everything i could and, and for as long as it took to pay them back but i didn't know whether i was going to or not and you know that was one among a couple you know just really devastating conversations that i had i was really lucky though that i had two great partners who were we were both signed all three of us were signed up to make sure that we did everything we could to get everybody paid back and the company ended up being successful but it was probably three years of really really difficult times
0: yeah no kidding what are some of the core lessons you took away from from that experience what what advice did you get from that experience that you now are able to pass on to other searchers
2: well I think We, what, what kind of tipped us over the edge was we did, we did a fairly large acquisition that some of our investors were really, you know, really kind of pushing us to do. And I allowed myself to be influenced by them. And this is not to put any responsibility on them, but I was supposed to be the leader and the CEO. And Instead, I, would, I allowed myself to be too heavily influenced by them, not recognizing that they didn't have all the information because I was running the company day-to-day day and they weren't. And my two partners didn't want to do this acquisition and they were right and I was wrong. And I had, that was a point in my life when I was doing too much talking and not enough listening. And I wanted to just convince them why they were wrong instead of really understand what their position was and looking back on it if i had if i had run those meetings with my two partners with curiosity and no desire to be right but instead a yearning to get to the right answer i don't think we would have bought that company and then i would have been able to go to those investors and 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 make the case and explain why so that has so there's that alex but it's also kind of led me down this road of 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 trying to understand increasingly why people make bad decisions. I mean, nobody, nobody wakes up in the morning and drives to work and says, okay, today's Thursday. So Thursday is the day I make my bad decisions. Everybody, everybody wants to make good decisions, right? And yet we 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 make bad decisions and we make bad decisions that oftentimes we look back on and say, I should have known better. And you know, I think for probably the two of us, most of our bad decisions, we can look back and say, to the the evidence to support what we should have done was there and available. We just ignored it or we didn't weight it well or or wait weight it properly. And our mind likes to play tricks on us and 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 we, we and so all the this kind of whole family of cognitive biases, I think, is one of the hidden villains in leading an organization. And so that 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 that's been a fascination of mine since then.
0: Are there any exercises or practices you try to do to put your mind at a pause moment before a decision, which you might make the wrong decision and think and just relax and let yourself think about evidence maybe more rationally? Is there anything you do to help streamline that process a little bit or make it more efficient, effective?
2: Absolutely. So, so let's take a, a cognitive bias that most of us have heard of or familiar with, which is confirmation bias. So we're, and, and people incorrectly think that confirmation bias is that that we just look at stuff that is consistent with what we want to be true. But confirmation bias, first of all, your IQ, your awareness of confirmation bias, none of that impacts, this is statistics, none of, none of that through studies changes your susceptibility to confirmation bias. The only thing you can do is you can build these guardrails around it and so being aware of it knowing that knowing that you can't just sort of muscle your way through it is the first step then you build these guardrails so i'll give you a, a pretty straightforward example and one that i think probably most of your listeners can can relate to let's say that let, let's say that you and i want we want to go hire somebody so we do the recruiting and we interview eight people and we get it down to three and then we interview more and we get it down to one so, okay, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to go hire this person, but I want to check their references. Well, you're cooked. Okay. You've started with eight people. You're down to one person. There is no way you're going to have, you're, you're going to do those reference checks with objectivity. All you're hoping is that you don't hear anything bad. Okay. So don't even try to do that. Okay. So here, so here are the guardrails. Do your reference checks when you have three people. So now your reference checks are helping you get from three down to one. You're going to be critical in those reference checks. It's going to be a completely different mindset because you're trying to get from three to one as opposed to praying, praying, praying that you don't have to start over in the process. So that's an example of a structural guardrail that you have to put in place, which makes that cognitive bias go away. In this case, you know, confirmation bias.
0: I like that. That's a good idea. That's a good guardrail to set up. You've alluded to a few examples throughout our, our conversation so far, but I'd love to hear some of the ways you've seen the search fund world change from the second search fund that you launched to the 200th or wherever number we are at today with searchers. What's changed over over this time frame?
2: Yeah, and I'm sure it's way beyond 200 because I think in 2000 and 20 there were 88 so you know there's probably well over 100 people who are search fund entrepreneurs now per year well we talked about about one thing which is that the investor community to for an investor to be successful in the search fund world they have got to add value so that's one thing that's that, that that's new the second thing which is probably less relevant to entrepreneurs but sort of interesting is that because there's institutional investors that have limited partners, people that don't have millions and millions of dollars can invest in the search fund world by investing through one another entity. So it's kind of cool that it's that that the search fund world from the investor side is has democratized and it's been opened up to a lot more people. So I think that's pretty cool. Another is that is that through trial and error, pattern recognition, other things that we've talked about today that the best practices of what makes for a good company uh, are, are are getting increasingly established. And so so where, you know, you had asked me, you know, half an hour ago or whatever about about when I was first going out to buy a company, there were there were there was there were no rules, there were no guides, there was no handbook. You know, now there's kind of a handbook which is great because you don't need to, if you're a search fund entrepreneur, you don't need to relearn how to approach sellers. You know, that kind of stuff you should just copy. You should be using your, be exercising your skills and using your skills in other ways that are more sophisticated. For example, you know, how do you manage that seller relationship? That's different than what, what's a good email out to a seller. And And so these kinds of best practices are getting more and more embedded into the system. The other is that, it's a little bit more industry oriented. Is that for ever software was kind of off limits? But remember that 35 years ago, software was you know it was different. It was harder to write. It was more complicated. It was less known. And I would say that I mean, in our case at Food Partners, probably a third or more of our the companies that we invest in are software related because they have a lot of those characteristics that make for a good search fund company: recurring revenue. High margins, sticky customer relationships. So that would be another one of the, you know, I would say one of the big changes or innovations that's taken place. And of course, early on, every search fund entrepreneur graduated from Stanford and was a case writer for Irv Grossbeck. So I would say, you know, something like the first half dozen. And now there's search fund entrepreneurs all over the world from all sorts of different schools, all sorts of different walks of life. There's increasingly greater diversity. We have way more women. We have way more people of color. And it's a great way for anybody, regardless of their background, to become a leader and become an entrepreneur. And I think that's something that that the whole search fund community is quite proud of.
0: Yeah, certainly. Do you have a sense for where the search fund world is going to continue going or what things might change in the near future? Do you think there, on top of that, do you think there are too many searchers? Is there a point where you reach you're, you're kind of saturating the the seller market with too many searchers. Do you think that's also possible?
2: Well, I think I think it's possible, not possible. It happens that a certain seller might get, you know, multiple inquiries from a search fund entrepreneur, but that person's probably not a seller. Otherwise, they probably would have been in, entered into some kind of a conversation or negotiation with one of those early people. But the I, I remember that I think it was probably probably would have been maybe 1992 or something, was the first year that two people were searching at the same time. Two, all of America, okay? And I remember there was this kind of buzz about, well, how's this supposed to work? Two people searching at the same time? And of course, now it's 100. So this question about, are there too many people searching has been going on for 25 plus years. But here's the thing. There are about 105,000 business owners that need to sell their business every year. So whether there's 100 people or 75 or 150 people searching, the denominator is enormous compared to the numerator. And I've been saying for years, it's, it's as if you were kind of walking down the beach and you picked up a tablespoon of sand and dropped it on the beach. Or you picked up a pitcher of sand and dropped on the beach. It doesn't matter. It's still nothing compared to you know how much sand is on the beach.
0: Yeah. And talking about the evolution of search funds, one thing you've mentioned a few times is your the strong connection you had with your investors, who were powerful mentors for you through your entire process. And as the search fund world has gotten larger, some investors have maybe had more time constraints than they would have had earlier. Is it still possible for a searcher to have that same type of relationship with an investor base that you had, and what are some tips or advice that you might give someone to help build those types of relationships?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I um, so at 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 Food Foo, we have certain things that we look for characteristics when we're making an investment with a with a search fund entrepreneur, and one of them that is hard to measure but is specific is that we ask ourselves. Is this someone that we could see in our personal circle long after they've sold their company? Is this someone we could see ourselves being just friends with? And so we actually make that a criteria when we make an investment. And when search for entrepreneurs have asked me what they should look for, or students at Stanford, what they should look for in an investor... I I tell them that I think I, I I say I think you should you should look for someone who will be in your orbit or in or you can envision in your in your circle long after you've sold the company of all of my original investors every one of them that's still alive I'm still in contact with across the board and and, and by the way that's in reverse too of of now that I've been an investor with Fuddlew Partners many many former CEOs I'm friends with now so I think. If the, if the search fund entrepreneur has that in the back of their mind, and if they're, if they're raising money from 15 people, it doesn't have to be all 15, but a a bunch of them, they could see that. And that's something that they would want. And then they make the effort because generally speaking, these relationships are driven by the, 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 the generation below the, the, the CEO. They're, they're usually not generated by the, by the older generation. And if they just make that, carve out a little bit of their time to not making money, but making friends, those are the things that are lasting. And and I I want to say one thing that's really important. I I teach a class on search funds with two people, Jim Ellis and Gerald Risk. And inevitably, every time we teach the class, something gets around to a student will say, you guys seem to be such good friends. and then the case guests that we have had in or they'll they'll say you're, you everybody seems to be so know each other well and such so friends. And it's usually Gerald will make the point that the money the, the money is is good if you're in an successful investment or you're a successful CEO. But it really are it really is the is is the pile of memories that you build up with the people that you associate with that as you get older, is the thing that you value the most. So I know I've kind of gone on, on and on probably longer than you wanted, Alex, on that question, but it's just because
0: it's so important to happiness. I wanna move into some closing questions. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted, and it couldn't be search funds?
2: I I, I kind of hinted at this earlier. When I was talking about the cognitive biases, I really am fascinated with how our mind works and how it tricks us into doing things that we shouldn't do or that are are not in our best interest. So I'd probably, if I could teach any class I wanted, I would probably team up with some person from the psychology department and teach a course on applied cognitive biases.
0: How's that for obscurity? You probably didn't expect that one, huh? I like it though. How would you structure the class?
2: oh my gosh it would be so much fun because the the things that your mind does that tricks you are fascinating there's a book called irrationally rational and it talks about how we think about pricing and anchoring with different decisions and we do so many dumb stupid things because our mind is programmed probably to help us you know run away from a cyber tooth tiger instead of Doing the kinds of things that we do now, that are that I I think it would be a it would be a wonderfully fun class, and you would have, you know, games that you would play, and people would go, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that!" And say, "Okay, well, let's talk about why you did that," and you explain why you did it, and maybe it was a game that involved colors or numbers or whatever, and then you say, "Now, how might this apply in your day to day life?" And then you would apply it in your day to day life, and so they 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 experience it through an experiment. The concept would be explained to them. And then we talk about it, how it, how it applies in your day-to-day life. And then are there solutions around it? Are there, as I was saying earlier, are there some guardrails to protect you going forward with it? I think it'd be great class.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on?
2: Well, I got a degree in economics, at Stanford and I was really completely sold and bought into the Milton Friedman, Adam Smith, invisible hand that if you, that the, that the marketplace sorts everything out and that you should just let the market operate. And if you let the market operate, everything will be fine. And even though I'd been exposed to some notions of externalities of things that, that happen outside of the marketplace, those were kind of one-off obscure things. And so I had a very, very strong belief that 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 everybody, government and so forth, should be as hands-off as possible. And then I've observed over time how the political system has worked and how the free market has not led to good decisions and good people being elected to office. And even when good people are elected to office, the making decisions that are on behalf of the country. And then I have watched a situation where the environmental issues within the world are not getting solved within the free market system. And then the way that the distribution of wealth, I mean, the distribution of wealth in the the world today or in the United States, I mean, is worse than it was right before the Great Depression when things fell apart. And so I've just finally come to realize that the free market left on its own does not does does not function as it should, and that the that that there is a role for the public and there is a role for government in assisting the free market and working with the free market. But that took a while for me
0: to get over because I was I was deeply embedded in that belief. Yeah, that's a big one to get over. What's the best business you've ever seen?
2: Well, I think early in my career it was probably cable TV because I loved the idea that you would pay a small amount of money per month on a subscription basis for something that you got a huge amount of value there wasn't an alternative and the switching costs were very high and those characteristics of those characteristics still exist with businesses today i mean one of them is you know the the subscription apps that you get on the phone that yeah, it's 99 cents a month or something like that. So it's a trivial amount of money. It's almost more work to unsubscribe than it is to keep paying the 99 cents or the $2. And because of the the power of software and the margins of software, you get a huge amount of value from it. So I, I, those kind of subscription businesses that are high value, low dollar amount, high switching costs are fantastic, I think.
0: Any particular business stand out to you in that regard where it has those those kind of software margins and sticky costs or sticky uh, customers.
2: Well, I I just I just lost my phone last week and left it in an Uber. I'm sure that happens all the time. <laughs> and so I go, oh, you know, I need a new phone. And I looked and I realized that I had a handset insurance with this company, Assurian. And so I went online and click 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 and. I had been paying what I don't know what I've been paying two bucks a month or something like that. I mean, that's kind of the point. I don't really know. And the next morning there it was in my, you know, outside my door, a brand new phone. And I plugged it in and typed in some things and boom, my phone, you know, I, I had a new iPhone and I thought, okay, that's a pretty good thing. I mean, talk about a lot of value for very
0: little amount of money on a subscription basis. Yeah. That's been a, a case study for a lot of folks to study in the search world. And Is definitely a hugely successful example of a deal. Um, Yeah, just lose your phone and then you'll know why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, certainly. You didn't have your, you don't have one of those cases that has your wallet attached to your phone too. Like you didn't lose your wallet as well on top of the phone, did you? No, that's good. That's good. That makes me nervous when I see folks with the the card slot on the back of their phone case because if you lose your phone now, you've also lost your payment methods to do anything else, and you can't. Now, Apple Pay is gone and your credit cards are both gone all at the same time. You know what?
2: My wife has one of those things stuck on the back of her phone with all her credit cards. So I'm going to tell her about this podcast tonight.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Well, I hope she at least doesn't lose a phone. That would not be good. Hey, you know, it's
2: only a matter of time that we all lose our phones. You know, that and taxes and death are all true, right?
0: Yep, certainly. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dave, for for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed having you and getting to chat and hear all about the lessons you've learned over starting from the second search fund and investing and all these other things you've been a part of. So thank you for sharing a little bit of your time. This has been really fun.
2: No, not at all. And from time to time, I forgot I was on a podcast.
0: I thought we were just chatting. So it was wonderful. (laughs) I enjoyed it. That's flattering. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.